Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore several tales of black magic and witchcraft, including one in which a pair of murderous witches transform themselves into cats, yes, cats, pussycats, to commit all sorts of magical mischief. And all of these stories concern a real-life conjurer called Hugh Floyd, who was known as the Welsh Wizard, and who, according to legend at least, had magical abilities not by choice or by training, but because he was born with them. They were a gift from nature, a God-given gift, because Hugh Floyd was the seventh son of a family of sons, which, as folklore and Iron Maiden, but as folklore tells us, being the seventh son is a sure sign that you will grow up to have magical powers. And it's not just the boys. Folklore also tells us that being a seventh daughter is also magical, which might explain some of the magical ladies we also have coming up on this episode later. Now, to begin at the beginning, and as mentioned, Hugh Floyd was very much a real person. And while some of the details of his life have surely been embellished, and while we might never know what magical powers, if any, he really had, we do know that he was born circa 1568, and he was also known as Hugh Floyd or Gunval, which is Welsh for Hugh Floyd from Gunval, and Gunval was the name of his home, Cunvalvaur, a house he is said to have built himself, and which is now a grade two listed building in the parish of Mainturog in modern-day Gwynedd in the north of Wales. And it was here that he studied magical books about the black arts. And one of the stranger claims made about Floyd's abilities, maybe this is one of the ones that might not be true, is that after eating the flesh of an eagle, yes, an eagle, a bird eagle, he, as well as his descendants for nine generations, gained the ability to charm away shingles. Now, not the most impressive of magical abilities, you might think, but at the time, shingles was a big problem. It's this painful, blotchy rash, which we have a vaccine for now. But back then, people would have been very happy to have Floyd's help. And to relieve somebody of shingles, all Floyd, or his descendants presumably as well, but all Floyd had to do was to spit on the rash and recite the following ditty. 
male eagle, female eagle, I send you over nine seas and over nine mountains and over nine acres of wasteland where no dog shall bark and no cow shall low and no eagle shall higher rise. And that's all he had to do if anyone was suffering from shingles and they didn't mind being spat on, which I'm guessing the pain was so bad they wouldn't have, spit on them, recite that ditty, job done. But as well as being a wizard, Hugh Floyd was also a bard and a soldier, which is a very Welsh combination of occupations, poetry and fighting. And as a bard, he liked to write about foxes and hounds. It was a subject he was quite fond of, by all accounts. As a soldier, he fought against the armies of Spain on the continent for King James VI or King James I in his native Scotland. And anyone with an interest in witchcraft will know that of all the British kings or queens, he was the one most obsessed, even paranoid, you could say, about witchcraft and about the idea of witchcraft contaminating the land. So much so that he wrote a book. The monarch wrote a book about fighting witchcraft. And not only did he condone the torture of suspected witches during the height of the witch craze, but he was also in attendance to supervise their torture. As such, it's safe to say that James really did not like witches. As such, being accused of anything remotely associated with witchcraft during his reign would have been more than a little bit dangerous. And yet it was something that Floyd didn't shy away from. In fact, Floyd actively advertised his services. He shouted about them. But why was he allowed to get away with it when so many innocent people met such terrible, terrible fates? How was Floyd different? What was he doing that was allowed? Well, one reason could simply be the fact that he was a man. And while there were certainly male witches, the vast majority of innocent people accused of practicing witchcraft were women. But it could also be the fact that what he practiced was described as medicine. And while I mentioned shingles earlier, two of the other ailments he could cure were fever and madness, all of which were blamed at the time on demons and witchcraft. And so by curing people, not only was he making them well, he was driving out the devil. And it might sound like a contradiction, but he was using magic to drive out magic. He was using witchcraft to defeat witchcraft. But in this case, he was using witchcraft in the name of good, in the name of God, you could say, to defeat the devil himself. And another reason why he might have gotten away with practicing magic, with practicing witchcraft as it appeared to some, 
is that he was very close friends with many men of the cloth who seemingly approved of his methods and he was in correspondence with no less an authority than John Dee. John Dee, who is probably best known for being Elizabeth I's magician. She was the predecessor to King James. And John Dee was also of Welsh descent. His surname is thought to have been derived from the Welsh word Dee, which means black. But that's going off on another tangent altogether as well. Back to Floyd. As mentioned, he was close friends with many men of the cloth, but that's not to say he didn't get into the occasional scrape with the church. And his next-door neighbour, talk about coincidence, his next-door neighbour was none other than the Archdeacon, a man called Edmund Price, who was also a poet, something of an expert at King Hanef. King Hanef is a complex form of traditional Welsh poetic meters, and he is best known for translating the Psalms from the Bible into a format that could be sung by the Welsh-speaking congregation. Language is a very important part of religious life in Wales, because without these works being translated, how could the Welsh-speaking population praise using their own language? And Price is an important figure in all of this, and as such, wouldn't have been too keen with having diabolical witchcraft taking place in the house next door. Now, another of Price's abilities were his bardic powers, and he would challenge fellow bards like Floyd to satirical duels, and this is another popular feature of Welsh culture. The Welsh love battling in verse, much like the Mary Lloyd at Christmas time, but in these bardic battles, the poets would go back and forth, back and forth, creating new verses to try and outwit their opponent until one of them failed, one of them stumbled with their words and gave up and accepted defeat. And by all accounts, Price, as a master of this, was usually the victor. And if that wasn't enough, if there was no end to this man's skills, he was also, to quote, a master in the black and white arts. And he would challenge his next-door neighbour, he would challenge Hugh Floyd, not only to these poetic duels, but also to magical duels. So the archdeacon at the time was also a practitioner of magic, and he would use this magic to challenge other people to duels, one of which was Floyd. As mentioned at the start, there is a very fine line between legend and reality in the history of Floyd, and I think we are dipping our toes into the, the legendary side of things right now, shall we say. And if we take a look at one such duel which is said to have taken place on the day of the fair in Maintoirog, Floyd was enjoying himself, well, maybe enjoying himself a little bit too much with his acquaintances in one of the ancient inns. And there was music, and there was dancing, and there was drinking. And all of those things that a strict man of the church, like his neighbour Price, would probably frown upon. And lo and behold, as he was there having a good time, 
he noticed his neighbour walking by outside the window of the pub. There was Price walking by. So Sloyd popped his head out of the window and invited the archdeacon to join the merriment, presumably knowing full well there was no way the strict religious man would accept his offer, and he did indeed turn him down and kept walking. But this archdeacon was not above a little retaliation, shall we say. Never mind turn the other cheek, he was going to get Floyd back. And before he continued on his way, he used his, to quote again, occult powers. It's such bizarre language to use to describe a man of the cloth's abilities, but he used his occult powers to cause two large horns-like antlers to grow out of Floyd's head, thus ensuring he could not pull his head back into the window. So just to <laughs> repeat that quickly, there's a lot going on here, but he sticks his head out the window, he jeers at the archdeacon, come in and join us, you, you boring old man. The archdeacon solemnly says no, walks on, but uses his occult powers to make two large horns like antlers to sprout out of Floyd's head, and as a result, he can't pull his head back into the pub window. He was, we are told, stuck there, his head sticking into the street through the window until some hours later, when Price was satisfied that he had made his point, the horns vanished once more. And so you could say, while neither of these two men should be using black magic and occult powers, if they were going to use them, Price seemed to have the upper hand on Floyd. Or did he? Because not to be outdone by what is described as his rival in Ledger Domain, Floyd was quick to seek revenge. Knowing that the Archdeacon would have to pass an old watermill on his way home to T.D. That was the name of the Archdeacon's house. And there's the word D again, as mentioned earlier. John D, the magician whose name D-E-E -E, is thought to have been derived from the Welsh word D-U, which means black. And in this case, T.D. means black house. Knowing that the Archdeacon would have to pass an old watermill on his way to TD, Floyd lied in wait there. So it is claimed, and he summoned two demons to pounce on him. Once more, I think that's so huge it deserves repeating. He summoned two demons to pounce on him. Two demons to pounce on the Archdeacon. And while one of them dragged him into the trough of the giant water wheel, the other turned the water on and ensured that Price completed his walk home soaked to the bone. Which is clearly something Price wouldn't have enjoyed, but you could say when you're faced with two demons, he probably got off quite lightly there. They didn't drag him off to some hellish scene as envisioned by Hieronymus Bosch or something. He just got, you know, a little bit wet and spun around in a wheel for a while, and then off he went home to T.D. 
Now, as you've seen from those two examples, they both had powers. They both used them against each other, and they didn't really see eye to eye on many things. They were competitive men when it came to magic, when it came to poetry. But it does seem that, on the whole, they were friends. Friendly rivals, maybe, but friends nonetheless. And ultimately, they were both men of God. The Archdeacon, obviously so. But Lloyd was also a preacher, a public preacher of sorts. He would stand outside and preach to people. You could call him a manic street preacher, being a Welsh wizard. Or you could call it showing off. And there's a particular beauty spot that you can visit today in the north of Wales, not far from his home on the Avon Cunval River that became so synonymous with Lloyd and his antics, it was named after him. At the bottom of a series of cascading waterfalls, next to a deep dark pool, is a rock about five metres high called Hugh Lloyd's pulpit, where he would, we are told, deliver his nocturnal addresses and incantations over the water, the water crashing all around him, while Hugh Lloyd stood there on this huge rock in the river, preaching away. Which paints a wonderful picture in the mind, doesn't it? This this mad wizard standing on this rock in the dead of night, shouting out his nocturnal addresses and incantations. And not only did he preach the word of God, but he also conducted exorcisms, casting out evil into the rushing waters below. So there was a purpose for this spot. He didn't just choose some random sublime beauty spot to go and stand in. He cast the evil into the waters below. And as he did so, the black forms of the demons could be seen, visibly seen, falling down the waterfall, which was known as Rider the, or is known as Rider the. And there's that word once more, the, the black waterfall, where the demons were cast into. And very quickly, going off on a quick tangent as we're talking about this stretch of water, but it also has a link with the Mabinogion, those wonderful Welsh medieval prose tales. And it is said to be the location of the Slate of Gronu, which is a legendary stone which was pierced by a spear. But as they say, that's a story for another day. Back to Lloyd's magical escapades, one of which takes place in Pentrevoilas in Conoy, where he was drinking alone at a local inn one day, when he was approached by four men who joined him for supper. There was something about these men that wasn't quite right, and thanks to his magical abilities, he sensed that they were indeed up to no good. In fact, they were bandits from the nearby village of Asputty Ivan, who intended to kill and rob him to rob Floyd during the night as he slept. Now, quite keen on avoiding being killed and robbed as he slept, he came up with a plan with which to foil their crime by making, to quote, a horn grow out of the centre of the 
table and obliged the robbers to gaze at it. So he used his magical powers to make a, a horn grow out of the centre of the table. The robbers gazed at it and by doing so, they suddenly appeared transfixed. They were frozen to the spot and staring, unmoving at this horn. They remained in place throughout the remainder of supper and when Floyd retired to bed. And when he returned downstairs in the morning after a good night's sleep, he found the four bandits unmoved exactly as he had left them and exactly as he knew they would be. And with that, he left the hotel refreshed and ready to face the day. The bandits, meanwhile, remained where they were until the authorities arrived to throw them in prison. Now, Pendravoilus wasn't the only place in the area where travellers could lose their possessions, maybe their lives, after spending a night at the inn. Another such inn, just outside Betus Akoid, was repeatedly targeted by criminals. But unlike the previous case, no culprits could be found. In fact, no clues could be found, nothing whatsoever, even after setting up guards to watch all night, money would mysteriously vanish from rooms when they were locked tight. And there are a few variations of this tale out there, some of which are more gruesome than others. And I remember when I first read it, it does bring to mind that feeling of Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders in the Rumorg, which I won't spoil on this episode, but if you are familiar with that tale, as I'm sure all gothic short story fans or detective fiction fans will be, the murders take place in a locked room and it's up to Detective Dupart to come and save the day to solve the crime. But we are not in 19th century Paris. We're in somewhere very similar. We're in Betus Akoid and it's up to Hugh Floyd to solve the mystery. And he arrives at the inn one night Undercover, because as mentioned, he is quite well known for his powers, something of a minor celebrity, and he pretends to be an officer. En route to Ireland, people would head this way, well they still do nowadays, they head up north to get the ferry across the water. He was heading towards Ireland and needed a room for the night. The inn was run by two sisters, who Floyd considered to be Attractive, we are told, and very agreeable hostesses. So much so that he felt compelled to return their hospitality by recalling some tales of his travels to far-off lands for them. Although none of them were true, of course, he was making them up because he was pretending to be an officer who'd travelled to these far-flung places, but nevertheless he impressed them with these tales of far off lands and as the witching hour approached and they all prepared to retire he made one request before heading to his room he needed a light burning in his room all night and he was supplied with enough candles to last until the morning 
But he didn't want them because he was scared of the dark. Rather, he was preparing an all-night vigil and setting a trap for any would-be intruders. With the flicker of the candle illuminating the room, he securely locked the door. He positioned his clothing within easy reach of the bed. He unsheathed his sword and laid it ready at his side and closed his eyes, pretending to sleep. He was, as it were, ready to pounce. His clothes, his sword, they were all good to go. And it didn't take long before he was joined by company in the room. But they didn't enter by the door or even by the window. Two long cats creeped down the chimney and into the room where they played and they chased each other for a little while and after receiving no response from the slumbering occupant of the room, then they cautiously made their way to his clothes, which they turned over and inspected. And as Lloyd, through his half-closed eyes, saw one of their paws entered his pocket, which contained his purse. With that, he sprang into action and, grasping his sword, lashed out like a bolt of lightning, striking the paw of the feline thief who howled in pain before they both disappeared back up the chimney from which they had entered. And while Schleid kept a careful watch, he was disturbed no further that night. So, a quick recap. Floyd was ready to see if anyone attempted to steal his belongings that night. And that's exactly what happened. But, rather than being any human thief, it was, in fact, two cats who climbed down the chimney, who tried going through his pockets, and as they did so, he lashed out with his sword, wounding one of them by cutting their paw. Now, at breakfast the next morning, he was greeted by only one of the sisters, and upon inquiring of the other, he was told that she was too ill to serve him. Following his food, he was ready to be on his way, but he insisted on thanking the absent sister for her hospitality before leaving, and despite the many excuses of her sister, he would not take no for an answer. Finding her in her bedroom, he offered his sympathies and services and, as he prepared to leave, held out his right hand to shake hers in goodbye. She, in return, held out her left hand, at which Floyd laughed and told her that, as, to quote, shapely as it was, he had never shaken a left hand before and was not about to start with her. I'm sure we all know the etiquette of hand shaking and it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense if the other person holds out the wrong hand, which is why he laughed and that is why he refused. And despite her protestations, they were in vain and eventually 
Fighting through the pain, she raised her hand towards Floyd, which was covered in bandages from a wound sustained the night before. Now, I'm pretty sure we've all worked out exactly what's going on here. You don't need me to spell it out. But with this, it proved that Floyd's hunch was correct and the mystery was now solved. The sisters were witches who could change into cats at will, which allowed them to rob the travellers staying under their roof. And yet, Floyd wasn't quite finished with them yet. He turned to the wounded sister and told her that having wounded her, she would now lose her evil powers and posed no supernatural threat to future travellers. Her sister, however, was still a threat. And with that, he grabbed her hand and sliced it with a knife, drawing blood and so neutralising her powers also. And with that, no more robberies took place at their inn, and Hugh Floyd's reputation entered the realm of legend. And as mentioned right at the start of this episode, while the Welsh wizard Hugh Floyd might indeed have been a real person, how many of his tales were legendary and which were real? I shall leave you, dear listener, make up your own mind. But I am sure Hugh Floyd is a character who will crop up again and again on this podcast. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you don't want to miss any of the future episodes, as always, please consider hitting the subscribe button. And if you've really enjoyed it, you can now treat me to a coffee via my website, or you can just leave a quick, nice review or give it a thumbs up or five stars or whatever the options are on whatever platform you are consuming this on. For more Ghosts and Folklore, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram. And as well as this podcast, I've also written a number of books about similar weird and wonderful subjects which are available from all good bookshops offline and on. And on that note, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian am Rando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast, beaming to you from Wales to the world. Until next time, no stop.